This is a podcast about new crops. You're going to love it. Join us on The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. I think we're very early on the discovery phase to be able to know what the potential is like for the ground nut. I like what I see so far, but I also remind myself that I'm looking at it through an agronomic lens. There's also the market and consumer demand end of it and what those products might look like on the shelf. Welcome to another episode of the Cutting Edge podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. My name is Jordan Schuler, and I'm the Regional Crop Educator with UW-Madison Division of Extension. Co-hosting with me today is Stefan Mursky, the Emerging Crops Outreach Specialist. Today's episode, we will be discussing the Bambara groundnut. Our guest today is Dr. Jed Cahoon, a professor in the Department of Horticulture and Integrated Pest Management Program Director here at UW-Madison. Dr. Cahoon's research and outreach focus is commercial specialty crop production. So I'm gonna let Judd introduce himself and give a little background on his past and current projects. Thanks very much for having me today. Uh, as was mentioned, I'm a professor in the Department of Horticulture where I specialize in applied research and outreach in commercial fruit and vegetable production, including some emerging crops uh, that we deal with in the States, such as the Bombera groundnut, and hops, mint, and several others. I'm also the Integrated Pest Management or IPM Program Director uh, for UW-Madison, where we develop reasonable and feasible pest management tools that can be used in a way that protects human health and the environment in which we're farming. Well, thank you, Judd, for being here today. Um, could you maybe provide listeners some background on what the Bambara groundnut is? The Bambara groundnut is a crop that's native to sub-Saharan Africa, primarily West Africa. Uh, it originated in the Bambara district uh, near Timbuktu in the southern region of the Sahara Desert. Uh, it's a very interesting crop. Uh, it's one of the most important grain crops where it's grown natively on Western Africa, but there it's considered a subsistence crop. It's not grown to be marketed beyond the farm, uh, but sustains uh, the families on the farms in which it grows. Uh, it has not expanded broadly from that region, but is considered by many uh, food security organizations to be one of the underutilized uh, crops in the world uh, and a crop for which there could be much expansion at this point. Uh, there has been a little bit of commercial production in Southern African regions, as well as in Southeast Asia, uh, but very limited in North America. Our interest in it really is several fold. Number one, it's a high protein crop that has much market interest among uh, plant-based proteins, of course. Uh, number two, it's very drought tolerant. Uh, it can grow in almost any conditions in my experience as long as we have some heat. And it's a nitrogen fixing legume. So it offers an opportunity for us to protect water quality by reducing fertilizer use. And with all those goals in mind, a few years ago, uh, we secured some seed from a grower in Pennsylvania 
and uh, started trying to grow it here in the state of Wisconsin. Ed, can you talk a little bit about uh, your research and what some of your main objectives are at this point? Sure. With Jordan's assistance, our first goal really was to figure out if we could produce the crop in Wisconsin. And uh, we did so in the mindset of a changing climate. Uh, and also with the idea that we were looking for crops that could mitigate some of the impacts of agriculture, uh, such as uh, contamination in groundwater by fertilizers uh, and potentially some pesticides. And so in the very early stages, and I would say we're, we're still in the early stages, uh, the focus is really whether we can grow the crop in our climate that's much different than sub-Saharan Africa, uh, but uh, with some pieces in common, such as coarse textured, low organic matter, sandy soils, uh, like we have in the central part of our state, and just seeing if we could get a crop off of the early plantings uh, since then, our research has taken some progression in two different ways. Number one, we've been selecting from the four varieties that we started with, or land races. These are unimproved uh, varieties, really, uh, unnamed and unimproved. Uh, so over the past four years, we've been selecting the winners in traditional mass plant breeding uh, techniques and uh, replanting those in subsequent years. And in that, we're not only selecting those that produce the best ground nuts in our production region, but we're also bulking the seed to be able to be planted at a broader scale. That led us to the next piece, which is to start to refine just a little bit our production techniques. Uh, when we began, we started the ground nuts uh, in the greenhouse and then transplanted them in the field. Uh, this past season, realizing the amount of energy and time that that took, uh, we transitioned to planting the ground nut from seed as it would have been done in its native uh, production. Uh, and that actually showed us that we could produce more ground nuts when seeding compared to transplanting, which was a bit of a surprise um, and allowed us this season uh, in 2022 to be able to plant at three different sites. Uh, so we get a better idea of how it grows in different sites and, again, gives us a little security in bulking our uh, seed populations. So right now we're refining the varieties in the very early stage and uh, also uh, figuring out how to best grow it in our production and, and noting any pests and other problems that may arise. Can you talk about some of the improvements that you've seen in the, in the few years that, that you've been doing this work? Yeah, so it's been very interesting. Uh, our variety names uh, are <laughs> are just uh, ones that we put out there in happenstance. We have really old, old, new, and new, really new <laughs> as our four years of different varieties. And when we look back at the really old seed in the beginning, uh, we would get maybe six to 10 ground nuts per plant. And by selecting uh, those that had more nut production in the past three production seasons, uh, this year in the fourth year of improving this really old variety, uh, we're to the stage of having maybe 20 to 30 nuts per plant. The ground nut is extremely interesting in the sense that these largely unimproved varieties have a, a vast range of phenotypic appearance or the appearance of the nut itself. Uh, they can range from a very uniform 
clear or creamy white uh, groundnut uh, to on the same plant, uh, groundnuts that cover the whole range from uh, solid black groundnuts to speckled and mottled, prettier, aesthetically pleasing array of colors on a groundnut. Uh, so we've been selecting for a diversity of production uh, in the end product, knowing that there could be multiple markets. So really an increase in production and an increase in quality, the appearance, uh, the number of nuts set per pod, and then the actual size of the nuts. One of these varieties uh, that we started out with had very small nuts, like the size of a pea. Uh, the varieties that we have now, uh, they're larger than a peanut. You mentioned you were doing this work at three different locations around the state. Can you just uh, list what those locations are? Sure. We've actually done work uh, in several different locations. Uh, we started out in the early stages uh, covering the diversity as much as we could in statewide production. So we had Arlington on a very deep silt loam soil that's very forgiving. Uh, the central sands, coarse textured, low organic matter soils that can be droughty without irrigation um, and don't hold much uh, soil moisture or nutrition. And the northeastern corner of the state in Langlade County with a very short growing season on silt loam soils. And what we found in those early stages is that the groundnut prefers the soils like it's grown in, in Africa, which makes good sense. Uh, so these coarse textured, low organic matter soils that warm up quickly in the spring can be droughty in the summer, but the groundnut seems to uh, tolerate, if not thrive in that. And we have the ability to control uh, moisture through irrigation. Uh, we've not used any fertilizer in any of our production. Again, it's a nitrogen fixing legume, so it nodulates and captures nitrogen. And so our focus in the past couple of years has been in that central sands region where it seems to uh, thrive. Uh, this year, we had our small area of production in the Hancock area at a research station. And then we had two private growers plant seed on their farms just to give us a little more diversity in production. So I know previously plants were transplanted, um, but you found that seeding worked better. Do you have a seeding rate or maybe an established date that you typically have found works best for establishing the crop? Based on the limited amount that's reported in the literature, we started there and seeded the crop about 30 days after the last anticipated frost. Uh, so in the central sands region, uh, on a sandy soil that actually warms up quite quickly because it's not full of soil moisture, uh, that allowed us to plant in about the first uh, week or two of June. There is some frost risk at that stage, of course, but we've avoided that to this point. And uh, in terms of the actual seeding rate, a lot of that still needs to be determined, but the plant seems to do well when planted close together. So in a row, we're now seeding them about eight inches apart. I think we could go down to six inches and still get a good ground net set. And our between row spacing really would be dictated by the cultivation equipment that a grower might be using, uh, the distance between uh, the cultivated rows with their equipment. I think it would be interesting 
because it does become a very competitive canopy to plant the rows very close together. So within a planted row, eight inch uh, in row spacing, and maybe one foot between seeded rows uh, would be sufficient to get good production, but also become more competitive with weeds. And, and in terms of planting equipment um, that you would use, could, could you use a lot of the same equipment that say like soybean growers use? The groundnut seed is about the size, if not maybe a little larger than a soybean seed. The groundnut itself, when dried, is extremely hard. So seed cracking, I don't think, would be an issue in commercial equipment. To this point, we've been using push planters with large uh, seed plates to be able to do that. But I don't see any significant hurdles given the hard, durable seed and being able to use commercial equipment like what you would use to plant soybeans. Can you just uh, talk about what some of the challenges are that you face so far in, in breeding with them? Sure. It's been extremely interesting because uh, when you're the first to plant something, you have no idea what to anticipate. <laughs> uh, so we had no idea in the beginning where it might thrive. It appears the central sands is just the perfect type of uh, soil and climate for growing groundnuts. But the, in the beginning, there's really no documentation to go from. <laughs> So uh, we didn't know what to anticipate. Uh, this past season was interesting in that we identified the first pest we've ever found uh, on the ground nut, and that was the uh, corn wire worm. And we were growing in a field that actually had had some corn seeded in it. We took the corn out uh, to plant the ground nut, seedling corn, just to make space to put our ground nut uh, plot. And it appears that that area had some wireworm left in it, and there was corn nearby, of course. I can't say that it was a prolific pest. We found maybe two wireworms in our entire planting. Uh, but again, that's what you have with an early stage crop like this. We have no idea what the pests may turn out to be if you were to grow it at a larger scale. Where it is grown natively, it, it doesn't have a lot of uh, pests uh, there are some viruses that can affect it. We've not identified any of those yet. The other challenge would be our, our opportunity maybe is whether it would benefit from having a little starter nitrogen in the beginning of the season to form more competitive foliage. Uh, the resources from the foliage would then feed the nut production when the uh, pegs are set and nut, nuts are produced. But we haven't gotten far enough along to be able to uh, determine that. Uh, we do know, interestingly, that there is a penalty to applying too much nitrogen. They will not nodulate uh, and fix their own nitrogen, and they stay vegetative. So they don't produce the flowers that send the pegs into the soil that form the ground nuts, just like a peanut plant. Uh, so uh, that's interesting and an opportunity to reduce the need for nitrogen because there's actually a direct production penalty to overusing it. So um, you mentioned the competitiveness with weeds. What has been your method for weed control? Uh, so far, it's been a lot of hand weeding and hoeing in our small plots. We haven't gone any farther than that to determine whether any sort of synthetic herbicides might be useful. We did this year observe that in areas where we were 
hoeing and pushing soil around uh, the groundnut plant as it was setting the pegs. A groundnut plant will flower. That flower will dip on what they call a peg down into the soil. And at that soil level and just below the soil surface is where the groundnuts form. Uh, when we were hoeing this year, inadvertently, we'd often push a little soil over the plants in that process. And interestingly, we found that they produced more, like lightly hilling a potato plant. Uh, by covering some of these pegs, it would send out secondary pegs into that soil uh, that enhanced production. Uh, so with that in mind, I think this crop could grow, be grown without weed competition with a simple mechanical weeding that also accomplishes the secondary benefit of putting a little soil over the pegs as they're formed. Uh, we noticed that the pegs that did not make it down into the soil remained green and did not produce a groundnut. So light cultivation would give us weed control, followed up with some hand weeding likely, and accomplishes the task that you would get similar to hilling a potato plant. I'm curious, uh, because this is uh, this crop is a legume, have you thought about or worked on any intercropping experiments or trials? That's a great question. In native uh, African production, it often is uh, interseeded or grown as an intercrop with sorghum or maize. Uh, so I think it could be very likely done the same here in our system. The challenge really would be uh, if we were looking to mechanize harvest in any way, that would be terribly difficult, uh, say, with a sweet corn interseeded with a groundnut. Sweet corn being four or five feet tall and mechanically harvested uh, with equipment that would be driving over the groundnuts. The groundnut plant itself is low and compact to the soil, maybe six to eight inches tall. Uh, so uh, mechanically harvesting sweet corn would likely be possible, but it would likely damage and make it impossible to harvest the groundnut with any sort of mechanization. Can you talk about uh, what what the mechanization uh, of harvesting this groundnut would look like? Uh, sure. So what would be anticipated in terms of mechanized harvest would be similar to what they use in a peanut crop, uh, basically a lifter and a, a short chain digger that uh, picks up the plant and the ground nuts would fall through the chain onto a belt. So similar to what would be done in peanuts would be very possible in a ground nut. So after harvest, in terms of processing the ground nut, what kinds of things have to be done before we can actually, uh, you know, you actually sell the nut? The ground nut first needs to be dried after harvest, which allows for the separation of the actual nut inside the pod. Each pod contains one or two nuts. In our primitive production, we typically get one nut per pod. This year in our lightly improved varieties, we were getting a lot more of uh, two nuts per pod, similar to what you would find with a peanut. Uh, so that pod needs to be dried so that it cracks easily, uh, freeing the nut from inside. In that process, the nut becomes extremely hard. It would be a toothbreaker if you were to try to eat them after the uh, pod is dried. Uh, and that's been one of the limitations of expanding from a subsistence crop to a marketed crop uh, in native production areas. The pod, or the, excuse me, the nut itself being so hard needs to be boiled for quite a long time 
to make it soft enough to be roasted or crushed or dehulled uh, for uh, the intended processing market. Uh, so that depending on how hard the nut is, it appears that it takes somewhere between a half an hour to two hours of boiling to uh, get it to be quite soft and edible at that point. In some of the subsistence production regions, they just eat them fresh. They don't allow the nut to become uh, that hard. But after it's taken from the pod itself, it's boiled. And then it can go a number of different directions. Uh, it can be roasted and eaten as a snack nut, similar to a peanut. Uh, it has a sweeter flavor with less oil than a peanut. Uh, typically about 20% protein, but that can range from 15 to 25% protein. Uh, and it's a source of complex carbohydrates. With all that nutritional aspect in mind, it can be uh, milled after being boiled to form a high protein flour. And there's a lot of interest in that market to increase the ability to use it as a plant-based protein. Interestingly, there are projects underway in different parts of the world to also crush it for uh, Bombera nut milk, a high protein milk that would be competitive uh, with products like almond milk. So multiple uses beyond that, but it all starts with the need to boil it to soften the product and possibly dehull it to mill it for flour. Just to go back and revisit the the cracking of the actual pod, are, is is there equipment already that can do that? I don't know the answer to that. Right now, the equipment is right here. <laughs> Thumb and forefinger. <laughs> Once the pods are dry, I, I shouldn't say that. Once the pods are dry, in our primitive small-scale uh, production, right now they're sitting on paper, brown paper, uh, craft paper on a greenhouse bench drying. And then uh, after that, uh, we simply smack them with our hand and they pop right out of the pod. The ground nut frees itself at that stage. And then you could just pour it over a screen that retains the pods and the nuts fall through. It couldn't get any simpler at this point. Um, so getting it out of the pod, I don't think would be a, a mechanical barrier. It's more of the need to be able to boil it for a long time and, and, beyond subsistence production, have the fuel to be able to create the heat to boil it. Do you have to go through the boiling process if you're going to use it for seed? Oh, great question. No, uh, to use it as seed, we simply dry it, uh, break it from the pods, and then store it in a cool, dry environment. I'm curious about some of the culinary qualities that you talked about. How much of you experimented in the kitchen with these nuts and, and what are your impressions? So I have experimented some, but it's been very conservative because we're trying to bulk our seed and it doesn't bulk well in my stomach, of course. So, <laughs> so we're trying not to eat all of next year's uh, crap at this stage of uh, production. But of course, uh, as a self-proclaimed foodie, I've tried it uh, and I've boiled it and then roasted it simply in a pan in the oven. It can be fried also, but um, we've tried roasting it. Uh, it tastes great just with a little salt and pepper. Uh, I have also tried uh, wasabi ground nuts, and they're quite good. Uh, so I do think there are several uses that could be explored. Uh, and I've talked to my colleagues in the Department of Horticulture who work with local chefs 
to develop new food products. And that's a mutual interest to be able to see uh, what they might be able to make out of it that's very creative. So I think it has much potential largely based on its protein content. Um, in terms of the taste itself, I would say that it's much like a peanut, but maybe just a little bit sweeter in taste uh, when roasted. So are there any other uses for the plant, like minus the nut? Uh, so in some regions, they've explored using it, uh, the tops of the plants, the vegetation as animal feed. Um, and it appears uh, to have a nutritional profile uh, that would be good for animal feed also. That's not my area of expertise, but certainly uh, would be one worth exploring as a secondary market for the other portion of the plant uh, that we're not consuming. Beyond that, the, a lot of the uses have been uh, as a snack food, as I mentioned, boiled and then roasted or fried. Uh, as a high-protein flour product and multi-ingredient products, or in one of these milk-type uh, products. Uh, in Africa, they also boil it and then basically blend it into a gelatinous-appearing product that they uh, use as a breakfast food. Uh, mixed with other oils like coconut oil and spices. Um, it's been used as a, a breakfast food for hundreds of years. So I'm curious just what your near-term research plans are uh, with this crop. Just, yeah, next year, what do you what do you have planned? We're continuing down the two paths that we're on now. First, working with uh, plant breeders to intentionally select for uh, the desirable traits. Uh, those would be a diverse uh, nut portfolio under the ground of what we're getting from each plant, something that's aesthetically and culinary appetizing and pleasing, uh, but also uh, looking at the production part of that. How can we optimize production, uh, so get the most yield out of the least land, water, and nutrients? And we'll continue down that path. We'll continue down the path of general production research, uh, the seeding versus transplanting, bed configurations. Is a starter fertilizer useful to get it going? Um, what amount of irrigation optimizes production? Uh, and generally observing uh, the conditions in which it produces the most. Uh, so what were the climatic conditions like, and are there any uh, pest management uh, barriers that we would need to address, like if we were to find more wireworms uh, and such? And uh, that production research, again, will be combined with this early plant breeding uh, selection. So right now, we want to see how consistent our, our lines carry from year to year. And soon we'll be planting them in the uh, greenhouse, noting the appearance of the nut that we're planting, and then documenting the nuts that we get out of our greenhouse production over the winter uh, to see if there's a consistency. If we plant a speckled ground nut, for example, uh, do we get consistent speckled ground nuts of the same size and quality out of the other end? Uh, that'll give us a sense of how far along these plants are in improvements uh, of the varieties, uh, while we're also bulking more seed to be produced uh, in the field next year. One of the potential hurdles to the groundnut is that it really enjoys heat. And Wisconsin 
while we consider our summers to be warm, they're not as hot as the native production area, not as arid for sure. Uh, and I think we are probably relying very heavily on a warm fall to this point to get good ground nut production. Uh, so it'll be interesting to observe uh, what it would do if we had an earlier frost than what we've had in the past few years. Uh, or if we don't have these warm September months, I think the crop is made in September, like growing sweet potatoes in Wisconsin. And uh, so uh, we also want to observe what it does in different climatic conditions. I would say in general, our research focuses on uh, three goals, improving the groundnut varieties that we're planting so that they're consistent evaluating whether groundnut would be a resilient crop in our climatic production areas, and developing the tools and practices to optimize production. And are you doing any of this work in collaboration with other universities or growers around the country, or is Wisconsin kind of taking the lead on this? As far as I know, I think we're the largest groundnut producer in the country. <laughs> <laughs> so no, we are not uh, doing it in collaboration with really anybody outside of uh, a few farmers in Wisconsin and my colleagues on the emerging crops team, including the uh, plant breeders. Uh, and I'm not aware of any uh, substantial research being done with it in other parts of the country. It has been lightly explored, probably in the same range as what we've done in Wisconsin and states like North Carolina and Florida. Uh, but I think we're all at about that same stage of uh, early introduction and discovery. Cool. So other than Wisconsin, do you have any predictions or thoughts on what other states might be able to work with the groundnut? I think that the groundnut could be a good fit for several production systems, uh, particularly those that have warm, long growing seasons, coarse textured, low organic matter soils, like maybe what you would find in parts of Florida, Texas, uh, California, and the southwestern United States uh, in general. And I think it could make a good rotational fit uh, in areas where agriculture is being constrained by a lack of water in particular. Uh, it really seems to thrive in very droughty conditions and is an extremely resilient crop in my early experience with it. Uh, so I think it would make a nice agronomic fit in those regions, but also have a benefit in improving the resiliency of agriculture in systems that are threatened by aspects like uh, reduced water uh, availability. So if you had to look into the future, into the crystal ball, how much potential do you see in Wisconsin for the groundnut? Like how many, how many years away are we from having, you know, registered varieties and being able to start a commercial industry, or is that even in the future for the groundnut in your opinion? That's a great question. I think we're very early on the discovery phase to be able to know what the potential is like for the groundnut. I like what I see so far, but I also remind myself that I'm looking at it through an agronomic lens. There's also the market and consumer demand end of it and what those products might look like on the shelf uh, in terms of competing with other 
uh, plant-based proteins. Uh, so from an agronomic perspective, I think there is a fair amount of potential for it to be a very nice rotational crop uh, in our diversified production systems here in Wisconsin. Uh, we have the experience to do so. We have processing infrastructure to be able to be creative. Uh, and our growers uh, like trying something new. Uh, so I think there's a good potential across a broad spectrum of production in Wisconsin. Uh, and from there, we would need to see what the market demands in terms of the volume of production. Are there any systems already in place in terms of processing that could potentially be adapted for this crop? I think there are systems to be able to process it in milling to form flour type products. We do not have an industry similar uh, to groundnut industries where they boil and roast or fry nuts, as far as I know. Uh, you know, so for example, we don't have peanut producers in Wisconsin for which we could adapt to the groundnut. Uh, so that would be a little bigger stretch. But again, if the demand is there, Wisconsin has a long experience of having very diversified processing crops. Uh, so I don't think that would be a significant hurdle uh, to be able to adapt to that if there's the demand, the pull side would have to dictate uh, whether financially it was something worth investing in. But at some point, somebody planted the first potato here and the first soybean and the first sweet potato. And we've shown that we're, we're resilient and adaptable. Uh, so that's kind of the fun part is to be at this very early stage to see if it has that potential uh, to be able to blossom into something like the crops that we're known for growing today. I will say that probably what I've learned about exploring new crops is maybe more valuable about the actual substance I've learned about the groundnut. And that's been very interesting to put something in the ground for the first time, as you know, Jordan, and not knowing what's going to come up, uh, to identifying the first pests, uh, to uh, evolving the crop in the very early stages from labor-intense transplanting and a energy-rich greenhouse to figuring out that you could just put the seed in the ground and walk away for a few weeks uh, was quite a jump. Uh, so those jumps are really interesting uh, and eye-opening to be able to have that type of experience uh, on a very early agronomic end is exciting. Well, thank you so much, Jed, for joining us. Uh, this is really interesting. I think Jordan and I both learned a lot about the groundnut and um, good luck with the research. This has been another episode of The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. Thank you all for listening. And thanks again to Jed for joining us today. Brought to you by the University of Wisconsin-Madison Division of Extension.